Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest this week is a journalist and broadcaster, Mike Graham. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for inviting me. Very nice bijou little place you've got here. <laughs> right? I don't know if I'm allowed to say where it is in case you have sort of, you know, people that might come here and do you harm. Yeah. Um, but it's a very nice part of North London. Uh, I took a little time to find it, but it's an amazing part of the, of, of the world. This I really like it. I actually did, um, uh, used to do a show uh, with a guy called Mike Parry called The Two Mikes, and we actually started our comedy career uh, at Hen and Chickens, uh, oh, which really? is not a million miles away from mm. here. And, uh, and it went from uh, from bad to worse, basically. And now I don't work with them anymore. So but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got there very quickly. Yeah, sorry. But, I mean, you've described me as brilliant and fascinating already. So I hope I can be that. I don't know if I can be. But for anyone who doesn't know who I am, I do a show on Talk Radio uh, every day, Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, up against James O'Brien, mm. uh, who's not one of my favorite people. Um, I knew him when he was a, uh, a sort of an apprentice journalist uh, during a period of his life when he used to say, uh, and he's now, he, he says now in his book that he was a failed journalist, which is entirely correct. Um, <laughs> and he used to be like a showbiz um, sort of runner, effectively. Mm-hmm. He used to mm. turn up at parties and try and get quotes from people, and he didn't do it very well. Now he claims to be this kind of great thinker, um, and I'm not quite sure how he managed to make that leap. But mm. my mission in life is to get him off the air, basically, <laughs> <laughs> by being better than him and yeah. stealing his audience. He's got a much bigger audience than me because he's, uh, he's working for a station that's been going, you know, for a lot longer. Mm. So, mm. Um, yeah, so before I got his radio, though, I was a newspaper guy. I was in Fleet Street for so you're rocky. 25 years, really. Um, when, it was, when it was hot, when it was great, when it was amazing, when you could basically get away with murder. Um, and uh, obviously we couldn't do it now, some of the stuff that we did then. Um, but I can personally say that when I was a journalist and I worked in America for 10 years, I never did anything that was in any way illegal uh, or uh, unlawful. Um, and there was nothing that I couldn't defend doing. And I think a lot of other, where, it, where it all went wrong was a lot of people started to do that. Mm. Um, and you better stop me at some point. No, 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 we're no. about to. But I was just thinking, like you describing your fight with uh, with James O'Brien, you're like Rocky, and he is Apollo Creed. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Yeah, Although he's not as classy. He as just that. keeps punching and, you, and no. I suspect he hasn't got a very good punch. But that's another story, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, it's probably he's so miserable enough. is the thing. I yeah. mean, people have come to listen to my show, not least because you know, obviously, I tend to be more of a, a Brexiteer, even though I actually didn't vote in the referendum at all um, because I don't vote. It's one of the things that I choose not to do. On it in order to be a proper journalist. Why not? That's well, really Well, because in order to be a proper journalist, I think you actually do have to be neutral. And you can't be neutral if you vote. And when people say to me, yeah, but hang on, you know, surely you need representation. You need to, you know, put your kind of mark on a, on a piece of paper and, and, and become part of the, uh, uh, the, the population. I say not really, because I think if I voted Conservative or if I voted Labour, if I voted Leave or I voted Remain, I couldn't honestly kind of, you know, carry on a conversation about what should happen. But now, you I, do have strong views, though, don't you? I mean, you are hmm. pro-Brexit, for I example, am pro-Brexit, right? but one of the reasons I'm pro-Brexit uh, <laughs> is because the people voted to leave the European okay. Union. So that's my motivation for oh. it. If they had voted to remain in it, I would have said, well, then that's what we have to do. Mm. You know, so you're pro-democracy. I'm pro-democracy. You, you know, right. a lot of people think that that's just me hiding behind you know, a banner, but it's not. You know, I, and, and also, as, as I started to talk more and more about Brexit, I got more and more fed up with the kind of remain... Uh, sort of elite, the, the people that ran the newspapers, the people that ran the TV stations and all of the kind of nonsense that was coming from the pro-Remain lobby. And I had many, many rows with with lots of MPs. Um, we had this tent down in Westminster and they would come in. And some of them were just so condescending about, you know, how everything was going to be terrible. And basically what they were really saying was that the stupid people have somehow voted for this. <laughs> and, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Mm. And we know better than they do. And I started to get really kind of wound up about that. And so... It seemed to me that I should be one of the standard. And now I'm sort of seen as one of the standard bearers of Brexit, which is fine with me, um, because it also, I think, was a really important moment, you know, for the country to actually have the people deciding what to do rather than all of those people sitting in Westminster, because they would have loved to have stayed in the European Union. And I still actually don't know why. I mean, I don't know which way you guys voted, but I don't understand those people who say to me, it's a great thing to be in the EU. I don't, you know, I don't get it. What, what's so great about it? Well, we both voted Remain. Because we're good people. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and obviously very, very intelligent, too. Yeah, yeah. You know. But that, that, that was a running joke on our show for such a long time because we, we voted Remain, but we are very much in your camp in yeah. the sense that people vote, man. And, and that, that's it. Yeah. And democracy is far more precious than if you, even if you think that Brexit will be economically damaging, which I'm not sure about. I don't think it will be. I mean, it could be. But any number of things could be. I mean, right. coronavirus could be a lot more damaging than Brexit right. it ever was. But also yeah. staying in the EU could be incredibly economically damaging yeah. too. And no one ever thought about that. But anyway, my point is, 
you know, just for, we voted Remain, we lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. There's never been, in my experience, a more kind of collection of bad losers. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> you know, we were sitting in, in Westminster uh, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, and at one point, actually, a guy called John Rental, who you probably know is the independence uh, political commentator, sat down. And I literally said to him, you know, I've actually run out of questions. I can't, I can't think of anything to ask you, <laughs> you know, because, you know, what are we going to do? I yeah. thought we were going to be stuck in this kind of horrendous hellhole of nothingness, going nowhere, not being able to do anything, not being able to pass any, any bills, not being able to get any votes through. I honestly didn't see it ending. I thought we'd just be doing this forever. But as it turns out, um, everybody else didn't agree. And so when the election time came, I mean, I didn't expect Boris Johnson to win by that much, um, but it was fantastic. I mean, I just remember because I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say terrified of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister, but I wouldn't like a Labour government. I don't think I would enjoy a left of centre Labour government because, apart from anything else, they would probably shut down the bits of the media they don't like. They would certainly not be very um, pleasant to parts of the Rupert Murdoch emperor, I'm sure, because already, you know, a lot of them don't speak to anybody in the building that I work in. You know, so um, I'm, I'm very concerned that that what happens next to the Labour Party will be more of the same. Because, you know, if they were ever to get into power, because Boris Johnson screwed something up, you know, where would we be then? Yeah. I don't think we need to worry about that too much <laughs> in the near not. future. No, no. Probably not. But it's good to see you remaining polit- politically neutral <laughs> anyway. Uh, but Francis... Well, in- see, I don't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, I have to do no. that on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I say to Peter, it's on my Twitter, it says it's the most balanced show on the radio. Mm. And so whenever anybody says it's not, I say, well, look, it says it on Twitter. I must be the most balanced <laughs> show on the radio. You know? But we wanted to talk about, about media the, independence and balance. Yeah, media independence and balance. Because yeah. what I think Brexit exposed, and we touched on it, was the fact that there seems to be this schism between between the media class mm. and the average working person on the yeah. street, man, woman, and how actually more and more people are becoming less, more and more disenfranchised with the media. Yeah. Why do you think that well, is? Well, I think a lot of it is, 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 the, is, is because of the individuals who are working in the media. Because, you know, I'm old enough to remember when, when I first went into newspapers, newspapers were not full of public schoolboys and girls. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a trade. A lot of people went into local newspapers because their father was in it or because, you know, it was quite a good apprenticeship. You could go and do uh, a journalism course when you were 16. You could become a reporter indentured by, say, the local newspaper in Hastings or in Cardiff or somewhere like that. Um, and they were just ordinary members of the community and they'd then go and work in the community. They'd cover the local council meetings and then they'd sort of move up to Fleet Street and all that. But what we've got now, it seems to me, is some very highly educated people who have all been to Oxbridge at some point or other. And if not, they've, been, they've got a degree in something or other. You know, and they've, 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 they've all become part of this same establishment. It's a sort of separate establishment to the establishment. But the media, for me, should be anti-establishment. You know, you shouldn't be part of it. You shouldn't be sitting there going, oh, I'd really like to end up, uh, you know, running a quango. Or I'd really, I'd really <laughs> yeah. love to end up in the House of Lords for services to journalism. I'd rather be sticking two fingers up to them. You know, I don't want anything from them. I want to hold them to account. And I don't think enough people really do that. And somehow uh, there's been this kind of cult of personality where you look at people like Paul Mason, you know, who's a great example of someone who was meant to be a, an economics journalist. I mean, I think he worked, I still remember he was economics um, correspondent for the Channel 4 News. And then he suddenly became this Labour activist. And you kind of go, well, what is, which, what, which one of these things are you? And actually, at least you knew what, where he was coming from. He seems to have gone completely mad. You know, I mean, he's out with placards, <laughs> warning about this, that and the other. He's now, left have now turned on him for being not left enough. Paul Mason? Yeah. (laughs) He's not left enough. No, apparently he's not. No, because apparently he's been talking about Keir Starmer being the answer. Right. So all the people that want Rebecca Long-Bailey to get the job um, or were rather keen on Jeremy. I think he's basically come out against Corbyn. Paul Mason's to the left of Stalin. I know. (laughs) I know. Well, something's gone wrong. You know, the wheels (laughs) have come off. But I think, you know, when you watch people like Adam Bolton Mm. um, and you watch people um, on Sky generally, you know, they're very remainy. you know, whether they think they are or not, they absolutely are. Um, you know, and, and the news agenda that they choose to follow tends to be very much driven by that. And I think that's the problem. Unlike, um, you know, genuinely sort of pe- people who try to be, and I know that people accuse me of being, you know, a Tory and all of that. But actually, if the Tories do something wrong, I'll criticise them for it. I won't find reasons not to. I won't find another story to do, you know. Um, but there were so many cases during the, the Remain campaign and the, and the Leave campaign where after the, after the referendum, you know, I remember the BBC doing a story about Northern Ireland saying that basically all the, all the cattle would have to be slaughtered, you know, if uh, this agreement went through with Boris Johnson um, and, and with no backstop. And they actually had to apologise for it the next day because it turned out to be complete and utter nonsense. The NFU came out and said, 
well, I don't know where you're getting this from, but it's complete rubbish. We will not have to slaughter all the cattle. You know, just stuff like that, just basic politics and basic journalism, getting it wrong like that. Question time as well. I mean, you go to question time and I, I watch it now just to get annoyed. You know, I literally <laughs> can't see any merit in it really at all. Mm. And they're so desperate to try. And, the other thing about balance, I think, I, I can't remember who said this. It was somebody in America who said, you know, balance is not about giving equal time to absolutely everyone. Because there are some right nutters out there. You don't necessarily want to equate one person's thought process with another. And so the person who said this in America said, you know, if you're trying to be balanced, if somebody says to you, it's raining, uh, you know, you don't get somebody on who says it's raining and somebody on who says it's not raining. You look out the window and you decide whether it's raining or not. And then you tell the people Hmm. whether it's raining. You know, you don't necessarily take every single view and just repeat it as if it's, you know, gospel, because we know that the, that the people who want to be in the media now or on the media are very sophisticated now. You know, people are very good at spinning stuff. And do you think the media has hit this point of crisis now? You look at the mainstream media, mm. and we, I mean, we were talking, you know, the, the Sun declared record losses of £68 yeah. million. Pounds. What is the purpose of the mainstream media? Yeah. Do we need it anymore? Well, I think politically speaking, it's nowhere near as influential as it used to be. I mean, I was watching Prime Minister's Questions the other week and having a conversation with someone saying even even Parliament is actually less relevant now in a way than it used to be. You know, Prime Minister's Questions is no longer what it used to be. You know, the debates in Parliament are no longer what they used to be because you feel as though everything's kind of already preordained. It's already stitched up. You know, all the decisions are being made now in Downing Street. They're not really going to Parliament to debate them. They now don't even have to because everything's going to be passed through. Um, I think, as to, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I can't imagine any newspaper being responsible for Boris Johnson getting that incredible 80-seat majority. I don't think you could, you could point to any one columnist that was, that was formerly powerful. You know, um, I think as, as entities, they're still, you know, part of something, but they won't last forever. And, and I think you guys doing what you do, me doing what I do uh, in a smaller way, perhaps, but also we're doing a lot of stuff on YouTube now. Um, you know, there's many more people watching YouTube now who've just been turned off TV altogether, really. Because actually, you have to ask yourself, the re- you know, why do you watch the news at 10? Why do you watch? I mean, I watch Channel 4 News, generally speaking, also just to kind of get annoyed. Um, <laughs> I've been very happy to see that um, Jon Snow has been self-isolated. Uh, uh, apparently, he went to Iran to cover the elections and he came back and he's now self-isolated. He doesn't present the news anymore. They just cross to him every time uh, that the news is on. And he talks from his kind of, you know, hellhole wherever he lives, probably somewhere around here, um, and looks, doesn't look very well, yeah. you know. So, but I mean, I don't really watch it to be informed about anything. Mm. Oh, then, no. And I don't finish watching it and think that was a really, really interesting, you know, item about something. And I've got a lot of time for a lot of journalists, and particularly the ones who go into war zones and, yeah. you know, individuals who actually are people that I respect. And there's lots of them. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's lots of them that work at the BBC. There's lots of them that work in Fleet Street. Um, there's lots of them that work it all over the place, but but the entities themselves, I think, are sort of confused as to what as to where they go next because they can't do what you guys do and they can't really do what I do because well, you know they 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 they're sort of they don't know how to. Well, they're on, the thing the reason they can't do what we do is because they're on the leash. Yeah, right? we 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 don't have a leash on us. We can talk. Well, not about at the moment, but I mean, Ofcom would very much like to put a leash on on YouTube and on social media as well, mm. wouldn't they? Mm. Which which mm. which is actually quite terrifying. It is. It is, and and YouTube it, itself would like to put a leash on everybody. That mm. and we've we've talked about that a dozen times. But I think in terms of what you're talking about, is it really looks to me like the mainstream media kind of they 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 keep clutching at things quite awkwardly because mm. they, they it's they're dying yeah right? and, and they're like trying to grab on and that's why you get these things like the kathy newman jordan peterson interview yes. where it's just worthless right it's absolutely yeah, because she's worthless. basically talking to a guy who has a massive following mm. um who those people who follow him think he's great mm. she's kind of introducing him to everybody else who doesn't know about him because they don't go on youtube mm. And they don't really know who he is. And, and in the space of the short interview time that they've got, they can't really work out who he is. And as you say, I don't think anybody learned anything from that. Well, um, the, the only thing people learn is that he, he was good at arguing and, and she looked like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And right. I don't think that's worth it's half It's not the only hour. place you could look for that uh, <laughs> right. uh, particular conclusion. But talking about the, the mainstream media, you brought up the BBC a couple mm. of times. That was one issue that we really wanted to talk to you about. Obviously, the Boris Johnson is looking at removing the licence fee, making yeah. it a subscription-based model. What You're quite critical of the BBC, yeah. are you not? Well, I think the BBC is too big, apart from anything else. I mean, what, what it's meant to do and what it was invented to do was to produce 
you know, broadcastable material, either for the radio uh, or for uh, television, at a time when that was really, they were the only people that could do it. You know, when they invented, you know, Radio 4, when it was called the home service, and I used to listen to it, my mother used to listen to the Archers, you know, every night, um, and the Today programme, you know, it was good because there wasn't much else to listen to. There wasn't much else out there, you know, and it was very well done. And, it, and the news, everybody watched the news at six o'clock because that was how you found out what was going on. But now you don't, if you don't know what's going on at six o'clock, you must have literally been asleep all day, mm. you know, because everybody now knows they get an alert on the phone when something happens. I mean, you know, during the coronavirus scenario, you're getting alerts going on all the time. You know, well, this has happened or well, that's happened. A few more cases over here. I mean, if you're really not able to see any of that and you get to six o'clock and you go, oh, my God, you know, uh, <laughs> there's a coronavirus going on. And you literally, you have to be living in a cave or something, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also, I've looked at what, what it is that they do. They, they employ 22,000 people, right? They've got 61 radio stations. Now, I was, uh, one of my incarnations was running a radio station in Edinburgh, the first speech license that was given out since LBC back in 1973. And it didn't work in the end because it was, it was smothered by BBC Scotland. BBC Scotland is this massive huge organization with a great big office on the banks of the Clyde in Glasgow, employs hundreds of people. And so commercial operators can't get a, get a, get a look in. You know, you cannot run a commercial radio station for speech in this country because of the BBC. You know, they've got BBC Sussex, BBC Surrey, BBC Kent, you know, all in a very small part of, of the southeast of England. Three different stations, completely different programming, completely different presenters. I mean, it's a nonsense. And they, 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 for me, that should all go. I'm quite happy for them to keep the news operation because I think some of it's still very good. But, you know, why the hell do they do Strictly, for example? You know, what is the BBC doing making a program about dancing in which they pay loads of money to individuals to appear on it? I don't get it. You know, that's not what the license is for, as far as I'm concerned. And why do they have such a massive website? You know, what are they doing making children? They have 10 TV stations, 10 channels. Um, which they don't need. They were supposed to have shut down BBC Three. Still seems to be going. They're commissioning stuff now just for the iPlayer, and it's just it's just too big. I think it just needs to be broken down. So you want to make it leaner, but are you yeah. saying we should abolish the license? Yeah, plate? absolutely. Yeah, definitely. But do you not think that and you should pay for the bits of it that you want? Right. That's how I would do it. The the reason I ask is like uh, and. I'm someone who, who's gone on the BBC a number of times, usually to criticize the BBC. Mm, right. So I'm not a huge fan right. uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, I do think that we do need one national broadcaster where in a very polarized politically society, we can all come together and, and what they need to do is kind of be more balanced, which yeah. they haven't been. They've right. taken the piss on some things. Right. But if they could be more balanced on that I think they could actually bring people together into a common space. Otherwise, we just all disappear in a, into our own echo chamber. Well, do, certainly, do Andrew, make... yeah, I mean, Andrew Neil made that point. He came back from America, I think it was um, sometime last year, mm. and he said, you know, I watched TV when I was there, and he knows America, he works over there and all that, and he said, I watched um, a program on MSNBC, which was a, four guests talking about what a horrible man Donald Trump was, and then I went over to Fox and there was four people talking on a, on a chat show there about what a great guy Donald Trump was. He said, here's what you should do. Why don't you take two of them out from each <laughs> side, put them in the same show, and they can have a proper argument. Mm. And I, you're right. I don't, I don't want to see British media becoming polarized so that only some people watch this and other people watch that. But the problem is, is that, you know, who decides what the BBC does, right? I mean, if you were to be the guy that said, now we're going to make... X number of shows, we can have this many channels, we can employ this many journalists. I mean, what is it, what is it though? Is it, uh, is it an entertainment vehicle? Is it a news vehicle? You know, what is it? How would you, how would you, how would you change it? Well, it's a combination of, 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 of a few of those, isn't it? Which is maybe why you say it's too big. Well, let's see, I mean, in my view, when I was growing up, I'm a lot older than you guys, I was watching things like Porridge and Dad's Army and all of that. There was literally nothing else going on. I mean, there were three channels. I remember when there was only two channels, you know? Um, and long before they brought four and five in, and you didn't have a massive choice. On Saturday night, the family sat down and you basically watched TV from about six o'clock at night till match of the day finished, you know? Mm -hmm. But people don't do that anymore. Um, and variety comes in many different ways. You know, people will watch your show rather than watch TV. You've got smart TV now, you can watch YouTube on it, and it's just as good, you know? You don't need to spend a fortune on making Peaky Blinders. Somebody else can do that, you know? Netflix can make Peaky Blinders. Why is the BBC spending a fortune doing it, you know. So I just think that um, the model of basically telling people that you must buy this 
Otherwise, we'll put you in prison. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be fun, right? Yeah. You know, can you imagine somebody from Netflix turning up and going, um, you don't have a Netflix subscription, so we're going to arrest you now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't, in this day and age, I don't think it's justified. And it is quite a regressive, if you look at it as a tax, yeah. it is very yeah. regressive. Right. And it's, you know, people, you know, on the one hand will say, Oh, but you know, it works out at you know about twelve pounds a month or something like that. Well, that's quite a lot of money actually for a, for a subscription. You know, I pay I think eleven ninety nine for Netflix because I've got all sorts of members of my family in disparate parts of the world watching it. You know, but you can get a subscription I think for about five ninety nine a month. You know, which is less than half. Um, and that's the other bit I don't get. They've now launched this thing called BritBox, which is basically their version of Netflix. They started it in America, um, and it's BBC and ITV together. They're, they're supposedly going to be um, commissioning shows for it, but they're also carrying old shows that would otherwise have gone to places like Netflix. So they're actually asking you to subscribe to something you've already paid for. So you can watch Peaky Blinders uh, you know, as a box set, but you've already paid for that. Why would you pay again to watch it somewhere else? It's just, it's just it's all wrong, it seems to me. It's too big. It's a bit like the NHS. You know, Bits of it work very well. Lots of it doesn't work at all, and they need to just you know trim those bits off. I think, and if they and if they say that the, the people want them, I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, but local radio is really important." Well, local radio is important, but it should also be uh, commercialised. You know, I think a commercial companies should have the opportunity to start up a radio station if they want to in Birmingham. But you've got you know BBC West Midlands there, and you know you've probably got BBC Shropshire coming in from the side. You've got. You know, BBC Bedfordshire. I mean, you know, you can't you, literally BBC York, the BBC Derby. I mean, I could go on and on. Mike's just showing up his knowledge of British <laughs> geography at this well, point. Well, I've, I've looked into this. This is the thing. And I mean, sixty-one radio stations. It's a joke. I mean, yeah. you cannot, you cannot possibly justify that. I don't think. You know, and they've also killed off the local newspaper industry as a, as a general rule as well, because they have now kind of taken over as the as the thing that local people go to. If they want to look at stuff, they've, they've got local webs. You know, they've got all. They've all got websites, and so all the news that's happening in your local area, if you live in Derby, is on the BBC local website. And you know, so newspapers can't get can't get any, any traction there either. We're delighted to have a brand new sponsor for those of you who are interested in learning a foreign language. Mate, we've got a predominantly British audience. None of them are going to be interested in learning a foreign language. Yeah, that's true. Also, no one is really traveling right now to foreign <laughs> countries, let's be honest. But when, when the coronavirus is over, those of you who are still left on this planet might be interested in second language. And that's why Babbel is a great place for you. Babbel is great because they have a website and an app which allows you to learn a new language with 10-15 minute snippets every day in a clear and simple way, which is great for people like Francis who are simple. Absolutely. And also as well, when you're in quarantine, what else are you going to do? You can try Babbel completely free. Simply head over to babbel.co.uk or download the app and you can try it completely free. That's right, guys. Go on to www.babbel and that is spelt B-A double B-E-L dot co dot UK or download the app and make that time in isolation fly by. And where do you stand on the BBC, the bias within the BBC? Do you think it's a fundamentally biased organisation? No, I don't actually. I mean, I think some individuals have got, um, it's a bit like sort of Noam Chomsky says, you know, nobody is unbiased. You know, no matter where you come from, you have a kind of inbuilt bias. So there's no point in pretending that we're all sort of these pure people who don't have any prejudices or don't have any kind of, you know, leanings. Speak for yourself, Mike. Who don't have any leanings. Well, we'll get on to that later. <laughs> um, but everybody has a view of the world, mm. right? Now, if you try and disguise that in some way and try and make out that, you know, your view of the world is this pure thing, which has come from your ability to be completely and utterly neutral, I would say you're talking absolute bollocks, yeah. you know? Mm. But I think there are certainly different ways of interviewing that dif different people do. I mean, I'm a big fan of Andrew Neils, for example, mm. but I don't think that what his... You know, when he did that sort of piece to camera about Boris Johnson not coming on his show, mm. I didn't think that was necessary. I thought that kind of slightly demeaned him. Really? I, yeah. I thought that was really good. Yeah, see, a lot of people did. I thought that it was unnecessary because the reason for doing it was slightly petulant, slightly uh, self-obsessed, slightly going, you know, how is he not coming on my show? You know, everybody knows that my show is the most important show during any election period because I'm the only person that can hold him to account. And he made a series of allegations about him without him being able to answer them. Now, you might argue, well, Johnson should have gone and done the interview, but I don't think it's the BBC's place to kind of do that. Like, they're all kicking off at the moment because the, the ministers are not going on the, the Today programme because they've said the Today programme is very biased and they don't want to do it. So they've become slightly less relevant now. 
you know, the Today programme, when I was a journalist in Fleet Street, was always the, the show you listened to in the morning, driving into the work, because it was the one that would give you all the stuff you needed to know, and that's where all the ministers went. Now that they're not doing that, people are listening to other stuff. But that speaks to Francis' point about bias, because in those days, that program would have been edited by Rod Little. Yeah. Right. And that, that would never happen now. Yeah, yeah but wouldn't. I mean, would you say uh, if you listened to the program that Rod Little was editing, hmm. that somehow it was biased towards the Tories? I don't think you would. No. Because no. Uh, well, Rod Rod's Little is, anyway. is, is a guy who can actually be reasonably neutral in his job. You know, he right. writes what we be, would be considered a right-wing newspaper column, mm. um, and he's a pro-Brexit guy. Mm. But, I mean, I spoke to him about Brexit a long time ago, and he said to me, you know, when the morning after the um, the referendum result, his wife went to get, take the kids to school, and they live in a sort of leafy part of, of the country. And she Near said, Canterbury, yeah. yeah, I came back from, uh, from the school gates, and she said, everyone was saying, we can't believe this has happened, you know, because we don't know anybody that voted to leave. Oh, really? Well, that's surprising. You know, that's because you're in a Volvo. You're in Kent. <laughs> And you're in a very nice affluent part of the country where you've got your kids in private school. Well, it's not very surprising, is it? Mm. You know, but they literally didn't get it. And I think that's part of the problem at the BBC, that they, because they live in this kind of rather nicely upholstered world, you know, whether it's in London or elsewhere, they're all paid ridiculous amounts of money, by the way. I haven't even mentioned that. There's a guy called Stephen Nolan, right, who gets 500,000 quid a year. He works in Northern Ireland. He occasionally covers for a, a Radio 5. But, you know, it's ludicrous money. I mean, I can say that because I'm not on £500,000 a year, but I'm actually better than he is. Uh, you might say he's got a bigger <laughs> audience, but, you know, that's not the point. Yeah. How does he get half a million quid? That is not in any way, shape or form market value. Fucking if he hell. left the BBC, he would not get that money anywhere else. You could buy most of Northern Ireland for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah, half right. A million yeah. Quid. You certainly buy all the cattle. You know, <laughs> the dead cattle. But, you know, but, it, but, it whole, but it's become, it's been sort of knocked out of kilter with reality. I think that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. And so I think they all sit around talking to each other, Fiona Bruce is a good example. I think Fiona Bruce is probably quite a good presenter of the Antiques Roadshow. But what the hell? How does she end up doing the best and supposedly most interesting political show as well? You can't, you know, why, how can you do that? I mean, she, she was a newsreader, okay? So I've got nothing against Fiona Bruce, but, you know, when she presents Question Time, she interrupts people who tend to be from the Tory party far more than she interrupts people from the Labour party. And it's very irritating. And they all do it. The interrupting thing is really awful. One of the things uh, that, that I like about these kinds of shows is that you're not sitting there trying to interrupt me all the time, you know, and I'm not trying to interrupt you. You let, you let people talk. And I know that they don't have perhaps the time that we have, but it's, there's a lot of sort of nitpicky type journalism that goes on where they get somebody on and they've clearly got, Andrew Marr is, is the king of this. He's clearly got one question that he wants to ask. He's very proud of it. Um, and that's what they're all hoping to make the bulletin. You know, they're all hoping to get somebody to admit to something or to screw something up, you know, or to, you know, to tell a lie. And it's kind of what I would call kind of hijacking journalism, you know. It's, it's sort of trying to ambush people all the time. I think what they don't understand, sorry, yeah. Francis, about that to is... To talk about interrupting. Yeah, stop interrupting. <laughs> yeah, yeah shut up, mate, <laughs> fucking hell. Uh, but what I think they don't understand, and this is just a quick point before, yeah. is that they're damaging the brand. Yeah. The brand of their, their company, whether it's the BBC or it's Channel 4 with Kathy Newman... Mm -hmm or whether it's the broader brand of journalism. They're damaging the brand by doing that, and they're yeah. contributing to their own death spiral. Yeah, and I think actually, I mean, if you look at what Trump's done, um, and I'm no particular fan of Donald Trump, but, and I've found it very distasteful when you would see those press conferences that he would have with his supporters in them, all kind of doing this, you know, to the journalists and, you know, threatening them and stuff and making out that the journalists are the enemy. And he really fed into that, and he really made the people who were there feel that way, that the journalists were definitely the enemy. Um, and I think there's a bit of that going on at the moment with Downing Street, because I think Dominic Cummings is very much about making the journalists appear to be the enemy. And I think he's been quite successful. I mean, if you watch the way he operates in terms of those little snippets you get of people following him around in the street, and he just says something ridiculous, you know, like you said, that thing about the kids' show, the masks, and, you know, he looks at them, you could ask me stupid questions all night, and he's walking away from them, and he's treating them really with absolutely nothing disdain. You know, but I've never been a fan of politicians being allowed to have, you know, these kind of staged events. Mm. But they're all doing it now. I mean, the Labour Party were doing it as well. And they would boo when the BBC would get up and speak. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a sort of, it's a kind of nasty atmosphere that's been, that's been created, I think, largely by, the, by the, the fault of the journalists for being too biased, but also the fault of the politicians for encouraging, you know, their supporters to feel, you know, kind of aggressive against journalists. And so... It's a really good point that you're making because you do see that, and that is mm. a relatively recent it phenomenon. Is. Yeah, 
And we've come to this point where we seem to be polarised and, you know, you get people openly booing journalists and both sides yeah. of the argument saying the BBC are fundamentally yeah. biased. Brexit BBC, B, you know, right. Brexit Broadcasting Corporation, all the rest of it. How do we bring some kind of unity mm. back to journalism? Well, you see, I'm not one of those. You hear this all the time now that, you know, from those who defend the BBC. Well, if they're being attacked by the left and the right for being biased, they must be doing something right. No. They must be doing something fucking wrong, actually, because <laughs> everyone thinks they're doing a shit job. That doesn't, you know, if you're a painter and decorator and everybody's criticizing you, you don't go, see, shows you what a great painter and decorator I am. No, it means you're not doing it right. And I think the BBC needs to stop being quite, quite so pompous. I think they could do with um, giving their, uh, their journalists, their senior journalists anyway, a kind of a, a shake up. Because I think they all think that they're God's gift to everything, you know, and they're the, they're the only ones that know anything. And they're very snobby about everybody else. I mean, if you're not in the BBC, you know, people just look at you and go, oh, what, you work for Murdoch? Oh, God, you know, how awful must that be? Or, you know, you work for the Mirror or you work for the Express or you work for ITN. You know, there's a kind of snobbery. I think, that they, I think they have to just strip it all down and start again and have a real conversation, an honest conversation with themselves about what it is that they think they should be doing. Um, and they should realize that actually the majority of people in this country are ordinary sort of lower middle class individuals who work for a living who don't really care that much about the transgender debate. They don't want to hear about it ad nauseam. They don't really care that much about LGBT. They don't want anyone to be horrible to anybody, but they just don't want to have stuff talked about endlessly, which is a minor issue or which is what, what most people would consider to be um, you know, a minority issue, shall we say. I mean, there was an interesting study that came out the other day about um, LGBT and BAME um, representation on, on broadcast media and on television, it turns out that it's actually overrepresented. Oh, of course. You know, <laughs> it's not actually in any way representative of the percentage of the population. Mm. It's overrepresented by a factor of, of, of about double. Right. Which, again, I don't really care about, but somebody's doing that. Yeah. Somebody's making that happen. You know, like when you have a transgender character in Coronation Street, right? You're kind of going, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, why did you have to do that? You know, why did you have to have a, a transgender character? You know, and it's, it just feels a little bit forced all the time. And I think that's the problem. I think everybody's been trying to be too inclusive. Mm. Mm. And they've forgotten what the majority of people actually are quite like. And the majority of people in this country are not racist. They're not horrible. They're not nasty. They're fair-minded. And they just want, I think, their television to represent, you know, their lives. And I think it's moved so far away from that that they don't really feel that it's it's for them anymore. Well, it's like we don't know where to stop, right, with right. all this stuff. So I remember there was an article about how the BBC plans to make sure that I think it was like 20% of on-screen talent are gay, lesbian, or whatever. Right. And I was like, why on earth would they want to reduce the number of gay people on TV? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, so the, the, it's not to say that making sure that people are properly represented is right. necessarily a bad idea, but you've got to make sure, as you say, that it's representative of the population yeah. as opposed to an endless drive to just make sure that everyone on TV is LGBT. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Well, I mean, funnily enough, Christopher Biggins uh, came on Talk Radio a while back uh, around the time Paul Schofield came out, you know, mm. the shocking and brave... Uh, <laughs> Philip Scofield. Sorry, Philip yeah. Scofield, yeah. Um, and uh, Biggins was hilarious because he's basically saying, you know, when he started working in TV, you know, you couldn't be gay. There was absolutely no way you could admit to it. He says, now, if you're not gay, you've got no chance of get, even getting on it. You know? <laughs> um, but I've, I've been told by various people in the business, well, you know, forget about getting on TV because you're white and you're, you're, you're male. You know, it's not going to happen. Um, and so, you know, like you, I've, I've appeared as a sort of talking head from time to time. But I mean, nobody's ever going to give me a, a, a TV show at the BBC. Nobody's ever going to give me, uh, you know, a job reading the news or anything like that because I'm, I'm not the right sort of, uh, you know, concept for them, you know, because I might, I might have a few views that they don't agree with. You know, this is the other thing, of mm. course, that people now are much less tolerant of other people's views. Mm. You know, mm. if you disagree with me, that's great. We can have a conversation about it. You know, it's called a debate. But now... If you go on television with views which are considered to be, you know, horrible, even though they might not be horrible, they don't want to put you on. They will never, for example, Kelvin McKenzie, more or less never allowed now on Question Time. He used to go on it quite a lot. Now, you can take a view of Kelvin McKenzie of what sort of a guy he is. But, you know, why should he not be able to go on TV? The reason is because so many interest groups have said, this is a monster, you know, we can't have him. He's responsible for all the, ho the horrors of the world. And so the BBC just goes, you know what, it's easier if we don't put him on. And I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of kind of, you know, pushing of, of certain agendas, a lot of pushing of certain, you know, cultural ye yays and nays. And so the BBC try and kind of keep, 
to what they think um, they should be doing to, to, to attract the least uh, sort of anger from groups, you know, because there are certain groups of people who are much more vociferous than others, right? And so um, if you do have, I mean, I, I think one of the greatest things that ever happened, for example, was when that guy from the BNP went on Question Time. Um, Nick Griffin. That. Nick Griffin. I mean, that was the end of him. He went, on, he went on Question Time. He made a complete fool of himself, didn't know what he was saying. And his political life pretty much ended that night, you know? So I'm all for showing people like that up. Putting them on, putting them on the air, making them look idiotic, and making everybody realise that actually this is not a very clever guy after all, and maybe he's not really worth listening to. And that was, and literally that was it for him, you know. Hi guys, we've got a returning sponsor this week, which is Beer Fifty Two. That's Beer52.com. Now, before any we go any further, you might notice we are in a little bit of a different environment, and that's because we're in my bedroom or as it's otherwise known, ladies, the Pleasure Dome. Beer 52 have got a wonderful offer for you where you can get eight delicious craft beers for a fiver. That's eight delicious craft beers for five pound. What can you get for five pounds? Maybe a pint in London? Maybe six chicken nuggets? I miss chicken nuggets. The great thing about Beer 52 is that every month they'll send you a different case of beers from a different part of the world. Recent themes have included Germany, the Alps, Korea. What? Is the Alps even a country? The Alps isn't a country. So if you want to access this incredible offer, all you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash trigger and you'll be able to get Eight delicious beers delivered to your door. That's www.beer52.com forward slash trigger and you'll get those eight delicious beers direct to your door. What else are you going to do? Um, Mike, we were talking about all these, you know, LGBTQ, BAME, all the rest of it, and we talk a lot about diversity. Yeah. But isn't one of the major problems that when we, we don't actually have diversity because real diversity is diversity of opinion yes and we don't seem to have it particularly also, at the bbc i think a lot of it is diversity <coughs> of class as well mm. which we don't have mm. i mean one of the things you see with almost every um black and, and, and ethnic person on major broadcasting shows they're all very middle and upper class you know they've all been to private school you know you're not getting the equivalent of stormzy you know, coming on the one show and presenting it you're getting the equivalent of you know um basically andrew marr uh, who went to school privately and who went to nice universities, who happens to be brown. Mm. You know, so they're not actually representative of anything other than the same class of people. And you're absolutely right. And if you don't have diversity of opinion, I mean, I was laughing at the Oscar ceremony, right? Because suddenly um, this movie from South Korea wins called, um, what's it Parasite. called? Parasite, which is meant to be a brilliant film. Sure it is. Um, but everyone's raving on about, wasn't it great to have all this diversity at the Oscars? And I'm looking at the, them all standing on the stage, and they're all South Korean. <laughs> and, I'm going, and I'm going, well, how are they diverse? You know, just because you've let some South Koreans in, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, that doesn't make you diverse. And they've sort of got it all wrong. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, it's a crazy time. But uh, let's move on to, to the political landscape, mm. kind of in broad brushstrokes. Um, obviously, the, as we mentioned and joked about earlier, the Labour Party is kind of disappearing. Up. Yeah. Well, they're more and more and more irrelevant. It seems to me. It doesn't. Yeah. Really, I don't. One, I don't really know what they stand for, mm. and uh, don't, they don't either. No, to be honest, I don't mate. think they do. And they're no. actually frightened of saying what they stand for. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I find the most amusing about them is whenever anybody asks them about, you know, who was your favourite Labour leader. And they're all so desperate to avoid saying Tony Blair. You know? <laughs> so they kind of dance around all this. I mean, poor old um, Rebecca Long-Bailey. They said to her, you know, who's your favourite for the last 50 years? And she named Clement Attlee, who died like 60 years before. So um, if one of them had actually come out and say with some honesty, look, we, can't, we, we should say Tony Blair because he won three elections, but we can't say Tony Blair because he basically betrayed us and he took us into this illegal war and therefore he will never be regarded as a great man. But they don't do that. They kind of talk around it like he didn't exist, like he was never there, you know? Yeah. Well, look, we've talked the Labour Party to death on the show, but uh, let's look at the Conservatives yeah. because Boris Johnson's obviously been elected on uh, a large base of working class people from former Labour yeah. heartlands. Uh, how do you see the kind of the, the job that he's doing? How do You'll get a lot of those kind of people calling mm. into your show, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I mean, we've got a, an audience of what I would say are more Brexit party types, right? right? People who were driven to vote for Brexit in whichever way, shape or form they could. 
Um, some of them are Labour, some of them are working class, some of them are Northern. And I think a lot of them are still, for them, the jury's out on Boris. You know, they're going to wait and see how it all goes. Um, and I think, I mean, I think he's um, doing better than people thought he might do, certainly before the election when he was, when he became prime minister. And we were told, you know, this is a man who, you know, would basically sell his own mother. You know, he's not to be trusted. I mean, I found it quite distasteful that they were talking about how terrible he was with women. I mean, I don't really care what, he, what, you know, what, he, what he's like with women. As long as he doesn't beat them up. You know, the fact that he's left a couple of wives does not mean he's not going to be a good prime minister. And again, you know, people like to sort of point fingers at guys like Boris Johnson and say, oh, but look, look how horrible he is. Look what he did. You know, he doesn't even know how many children he's got. Uh, to me, none of that really matters. What matters is what he does. I've been a bit disappointed that he's been so uh, sort of green because I call them the eco-planks, you know, the Extinction Rebellion crowds, the people that want to, you know, stop everything and make everybody just walk around and cycle everywhere and not actually get in a car, not get on a plane. And I'm really disappointed that he hasn't kind of been a bit less enthusiastic about that. You know, the fact that he's now talking about doing away with cars that are uh, not electric by 2032, that's not that long away. I mean, there are some ordinary people who buy a car and keep it for 10 years. So there'll be people now thinking, well, I was going to get a diesel, but I better not now because it's not going to be worth anything. And so I've been a bit, I've been disappointed with that. But of course, that's a very unpopular view because that makes me, you know, some kind of dinosaur. I don't know how that's unpopular because the thing with the diesels, by the way, that pissed me off is I've always had a diesel. Yeah. The government kept pushing diesels oh, they did. on people. Yeah. And then suddenly they're like the worst thing ever. Well, you know, ever. it was Ed Miliband that told everybody diesels yeah. were the right way to go. So we should <laughs> right. have known then yeah. um, that uh, that wasn't the greatest <laughs> idea. But you're absolutely right. Um, and the fact remains that, you know, he has this majority and the only kind of, um, I suppose, impediment to him being as successful as he wants to be is his own party. Because, and him himself. And yeah. him himself. I yeah. mean, I think one of the reasons why when, when we've had the floods recently that he wasn't going out there is because he's worked out that one, if he does it, he's likely to run into another of those Labour stooges who's going to turn yeah. up and say, you know, <laughs> my son's dying in hospital, what are you doing about it? And then miraculously recovers the next day and they go <laughs> home. Um, or he does something really idiotic, like yeah. either he falls down a hole yeah. or he says the wrong thing or somebody overhears him, you know, he has his sort of, you know, that bigoted woman moment or something yeah. like that. So I think they've worked out, as they did during the election, keep him sort of quite yeah. far away from the press. Because he's actually, people said, you know, Boris is a brilliant orator. I mean, people do like him, but he's mm. not a great orator. No. He's not a brilliant debater. I mean, the debates he had with Corbyn, I didn't think he was that good. No, and to me, the one thing that is going to define Boris's term, this, well, his, his four-year or five-year term, whatever it is, is going to be the question of immigration. Yeah. And that is what people, a lot of people voted for mm -hmm. with Brexit. Yeah. Pretty Patel has come out and said they're going to be incredibly tough on immigration. Yeah. Do you think he's actually going to commit to it or do you think he's going well, to fudge the issue? I think it's going to be a fudge because the problem is that an awful lot of businesses have already kind of turned their backs on it and said, well, hang on, it's all very well for you to say, as Pretty Patel did, well, you know, just hire some local people and pay them more money. People are going, well, you know, I can't do that because I won't make any money then. And what I do make, you'll be taxing me. And one of the greatest errors, I think, that they ever made the Tories was giving the Chancellor's job to George Osborne, who I think is probably the worst Chancellor of all time, who's put taxes up massively. I mean, I run a small business. My taxes have more or less doubled in the time that, uh, you know, I've been running the business in the last, say, 10 years, you know, because they've changed the way that they tax small business. They've gone after individuals who are the wealth creators of this country. And they're the Tories. You know, this is why I'm terrified of the Labour Party getting in, because, I mean, this lot have done bad enough as <laughs> we are. But I think that, you know, for example, the fruit pickers that would come in from Eastern Europe on, a, on an annual basis, sometimes maybe would stay for the rest of the year. You know, you're not going to find people indigenously here in this country who are living here who are going to want to do that kind of work so they're apparently they're going to give um, some dispensation to um, to the fruit growers so that they can import these people so so you can forget that one right first of all they're also now going to forget the 30,000 threshold for people coming in so that if you work in the NHS you can come in so you can forget that one and so you know I think it's a good idea to have a points-based system but whether it actually practically means anything I don't know and every single government that said they're going to crack down on immigration somehow fails to do so. Mm. And it ends up with more people coming in. Um, and That's what I think will happen with this, because well, the, the way they've set up the point system, I mean, I, that does, I think it, it allows a lot of people to come into this country. Yeah. Um, which I personally don't have a huge problem with, but there are people who do. So, and, yeah. and people voted to have it reduced, you know? I think the interesting thing is, is that, you know, it's, it's categorized and framed by the Labour Party as a, as a racist issue, right? Which it really isn't, because most of the people who voted uh, to control the borders 
voted about people coming from the EU, right. particularly from Eastern Europe. Yeah. You know, that was their main concern. They're not that bothered about the family of Asians who've, who've been there for three generations living down the road. You know, I mean, there are racist people in this country who might be against people with different colored skin. But by and large, it was the Eastern European sort of influx of people that came. Because of course, the European Union is now a very different animal to what it was. You know, when you, when I mean, I remember, um, I used to, before I got a dog, I used to go to Calais quite a lot from Sussex. We'd go and take a day trip over to Carrefour and buy some wine and pate and pretend we were Europeans. You know? <laughs> so isn't it great, you know? Um, Typical and, Brexiteer. Yeah, yeah, are, absolutely. Um, and, you know, coming back on the ferry one time, there was a group of Romanians and, and, and they were standing on the, uh, on the deck. And when the White Cliffs of Dover came in, they literally were jumping up and down, cheering. Because, you know, this was their kind of, you know, nirvana. They'd suddenly found the place they wanted to get to. And they all got into a van with Romanian plates and drove into Britain. They're probably still here, you know, because there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing illegal about it. But I think the problem is, is that if you look at countries where people live, where the standard of living is so poor that they want to come here even to do a terribly, um, you know, labor intensive job for not very much money, but it's still better than where they live. Of course, they're going to come. And they're going to want to stay. And the reason that people want to come to this country is because it's a great country. And the people who are already here from the EU are all asking for settled status. You know, two million of them. I mean, we were told by the, by the Remainers that they were all going to leave. No, they've all, they all want to stay because they love it, you know. Um, and I'm quite happy with that. But living in London, it's a very skewed prospect. I mean, I hear from people in places like Peterborough. Um, and I've never been to Peterborough, so I don't know what it's, whether it's true. But, you know, apparently Peterborough's got a very big check um, contingent of people that went and lived there. I would, that wouldn't bother me, but I mean, I could see how other people might think, you know, oh, it's not my town anymore. And I think that's what the government has to be careful about. They have to be, they have to be aware that some people think like that. But it, isn't Boris aware, and he, to use his own words, that the vote was borrowed, not given, and that he really needs to tackle this? Because if he doesn't, yeah. then... Well, actually, who else are they going to vote for? Well, I mean, that is the problem. I mean, you know, I've obviously got to know quite a few people in the Brexit party. I don't think they're, I mean, there was some talk that Nigel Farage was going to have a sort of, you know, reform party. They were going to try and reform politics. That's not going to happen. I mean, that's all going to go away because all of their funding is going to disappear. Um, But you're right. You know, yes, people will expect Boris to improve their lot in life. But I've always said, and I said this during the whole campaign of, of the referendum, you know, people shouldn't be, re, you know, relying on politicians to make their lives good or bad. Because in the end, you know, it's up to you what you do with your life. You know, yes, a politician can ruin it by making you pay too much tax or by, you know, making you move to another country. Well, you know, but by and large, your own life is your own destiny. And it's how you sort yourself out, how many children you have and all of that. It's nothing to do with them. So you shouldn't expect to be handed money. I don't think. I don't think you should be expected to be provided with a job. Um, and I know plenty of people who live in the northeast of England who are perfectly happy with their lot. It's not as if, you know, there's this huge swathe of poor people wandering about, you know, without any clothes on their back and no food to eat. You know, this is Britain. You know, it's not, you know, Siberia, for want of a better uh, place to pick at random. Mm, I'm deeply offended. I'm sure. I'm sorry. I, well, I, see, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm somehow... I'm Trust me, mate, you can't wander that. around in Siberia <laughs> naked for very long. Yeah. No, I can, I can imagine. But do you know what I mean? I think, I think we yeah. sometimes think that, the, the, the play, that people's experiences are worse than they really are. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I had a row with Laura Pidcock uh, before the election about poverty, you know, because we have this figure of something like 14 million people living in poverty in this country. And I just don't, it's not true. It's relative poverty as designed by the UN because, you know, they take the average income and they look at what people are making. You know, there are not 14 million people living in poverty in this country. She accused me of, of, of uh, peddling right-wing myths, you know, and then she didn't get elected, funnily enough. Um, but there are lots of parts of the north of England which are very prosperous, which are full of, of very reasonable people making a reasonable living, running businesses, you know. And yes, and it, but it looks already, one of the things that Boris has apparently promised to do is to, is to siphon more money up to northern parts of, of the country. But we've seen all that before. I mean, look at what, what happened in, in Salford when the BBC relocated to Salford. They spent most of their time ferrying people backwards and forwards from London because nobody wanted to move north. You know, in fact, Susanna Reid ended up leaving the BBC as a result and going to ITV because she just didn't want to live there. And now she has to put up with Piers Morgan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's, so that's how much she, was, I mean, that's she didn't how want much to she live hated in Salford. Yeah. But so, yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know how much the government can improve the society in which we live, you know? I mean, HS2 is another thing I think was a massive mistake. I don't really see the point of HS2. Um, and they're going to spend 100 billion plus, it'll probably be 200 billion by the time they're finished, to basically get from Birmingham to Shepherd's Bush 
in 20 minutes less than you would normally have got to Euston. Two dreadful places. You know, exactly. <laughs> and it's going to, I mean, how long do you think it's going to take to get from Shepherd's Bush into, into town? Yeah. You know, I mean, and they talk about, you know, crossrail this. And I mean, I do agree that we, should, we have been very bad in this country for a long time at uh, infrastructure, that nobody's looked more than five mm. years ahead. And maybe in that case, it's a good thing to build this fast train. But, you know, I'm going to be dead by the time it's ready, <laughs> frankly. And I know it's not about, it's not all about me, but, you know... Um, <laughs> Mostly, about you know, it. imagine yeah. how much technology will have moved on yeah. in twenty years' time. You know, people might be in flying um, drones. You know, being being moved around by you know Air Uber or something. Mm. You know, and there's people... still going to be cancellations on Air Uber, yeah. <laughs> oh, delays, and whatever. Absolutely, perhaps. of course. You know, you're still going to be there. What do you mean you cancelled my Air right. Uber? Yeah, yeah. You went to what do you mean you went to the wrong street. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the point is, is that you can't imagine something that that they think is going to be absolutely, you know, cutting edge technology now is going to be cutting-edge technology in 2040. It just yeah. isn't, you know? Absolutely. Mm. Well, I suppose that argument could always be made at, at any point That's what time. people say, and they go, oh, no, that's what they said about flying, and that's what they said about... No, actually, it's not what they said about flying, because before you could fly... Well, flying was yeah. revolutionary, You know, right? flying it was pretty uh, fucking amazing, actually, yeah. and so you could get from here to New York, you know, in less than a week, yeah. you know, which you'd have to take on... You know, so it's not like that. No. But what I'm saying is, is that, I mean, bizarrely as well, the Green Party are against it. Which always strikes me as slightly odd, since they're meant to be against, you know, for public transport and against, you know, car travel. But the Green Party are against HS2. Yeah, why? Apparently, because it goes through too many um, areas of wetlands, or you know, <laughs> too many badgers in too the way. Too many badgers yeah. and otters yeah. in the yeah, way, or yeah. something. But you know, it's it's kind of mad. And yeah. if you're going to spend that kind of money, it seems to me, how about you build some houses for people because people do need houses. Build them places where they're not going to get flooded, and in the places where they are going to get flooded, do something about the flooding. Yeah. You know, we don't need another bloody train. It's, it's funny, when you were talking about Boris Johnson messing up during the floods, I just had this image of him just like standing over some kind of lever on a dam and he yes. acc- accidentally fires it off right. and like the whole town yeah. gets flooded. That's the kind of thing <laughs> that you can imagine him doing. Yeah. Although, I mean, I think he's actually less accident prone than he appears to be. Yeah. Um, and those people that I know who... That's were, not what the women say, mate. Well, <laughs> well, I can tell you something, but that's not the story. <laughs> oh! Hey, come um, on, let's do no, it. No, it's, it's, it's not quite ready for release, this one. Um, but he is um, a guy who is very good at stage managing things, right? Yeah. I know some people who work very closely with him as the mayor. And, you know, the ruffling of the hair before he goes on TV, mm. you know, the kind of slightly disheveled look, it's all quite well manufactured. It's, mm. not, it's not normal. And his hair, if you look at his hair, I mean, nobody's hair looks like that. Yeah. The way that his hair kind of goes in different directions... He's got to be putting something in it to make it do that. Yeah. I mean, I know that I may not have the greatest head of hair, but, you know, I'm quite old now and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. But his hair does not look normal. And it doesn't grow like that. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. And, you know, I, I just think he's much less spontaneous than, he, than everybody thinks he, does, thinks he is. Do you remember, in fact, there was a, not a... Um, he did a speech. Somebody was telling this story. I can't remember if, it was, if he was telling it to me or I heard it on the radio talking to somebody else. He basically went to do a sort of after-dinner speech and he turned up late and he kind of shuffled around and um, he just went into this kind of random story about something or other, which was quite amusing and nothing really much to do with the the people that were there for the night. Somebody then saw him at another event where he did exactly the same thing, Mm. told exactly the same story and it was all rehearsed. It wasn't in any way spontaneous. It wasn't like, I've forgotten my notes, I've left them on the train, which is what he was saying. I'll just have to do it from scratch. This was a, a routine that he had memorised. It's like you a stand-up know? comedian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, you guys, I guess, do a bit of that. Yeah. Um, so you know what that's like. I mean, it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. You know, if you have to do an act and you have to, you know... I mean, Talk Sport made a massive error once, um, and I can talk about this because it was a long time ago and the guy's not working there anymore. Um, but they booked Russell Brand to yeah. do a show. And, they, you know, it was when Russell was kind of riding very high in the popularity ratings and he was basically on tour. And so the program director at the time said, this will be great, you know, because we can put him on at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and we'll just run it live every every night. Not live, but, you know, the, the, the Friday night recording, whatever. Yeah. So the first one went out and they were like, oh, this is great. You know, it's fantastic, brilliant. So the second one came in um, and he had to listen to it first and he rang the agent up and he said, um, he said, I think you've sent me the wrong ones. a bit of a problem here. He says, it's the same as last week. And he went, yeah, that's, that's the show. And he went, what do you mean? We've booked this for 10 weeks. He does, <laughs> he does the same show everywhere? Uh, yeah, he's a comedian. He goes to places and mm. he tells basically the same jokes and does the same routine. And they went, oh, Christ. You know, so they just they had to kill him. <laughs> and they paid him all this money, but they could only ever run one episode because all the others were the same. 
That sounds yeah. like a great gig, man. Yeah, it get sounds paid for ten. Well, if you find where this guy's working now, I'll tell you his name, um, <laughs> and maybe you can sell him something. We can yeah. sell him something again. <laughs> finance a show finally a way to monetize it yeah absolutely well, right no 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 as, as you well know we're well funded by the the pro-israel lobby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you get those accusations as oh, well man, you have oh, no yeah. idea it's yeah. amazing how people think you're funded isn't it when you actually aren't funded by anyone no yeah. well, we're go... funded by our fans that's yeah. the only people who give us money and yeah, yeah. constantine's overdraft yeah uh, yeah well that's very good um <laughs> but yeah i mean the, the 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 sort of the difference in the media landscape now is is, is really quite interesting for me because it's even just in five years it's changed you yeah. know and I think it will continue to change, which is why, to go back to the BBC, um, I don't think their model is sustainable, yeah. you know, because they can't possibly, if you were setting the BBC up now from nowhere, oh, yeah. you would not get to where it is now. It's oh, just like, would not. you join the EU now if you're right. in independent Britain? Probably not. No. But uh, just to, before we wrap up, I guess, uh, and on the political side of things as well, Sadiq Khan is somebody yes. you're not a huge fan of. No. Uh, we wanted to talk about, I mean, look, one of the... There, there is a couple of issues that are happening in London right now that, that they're just dreadful. I mean, mm. num- number one is obviously knife crime. Yeah. And number two is the amount of rough sleeping and homelessness yeah. that you see. Like, we walk around this very wealthy area and there's literally people with tents. Yeah. In the middle That's of the road. That's quite a recent thing, isn't it? Yeah, it very is. Very recent. It's I'm happened. Just, I'm a Londoner and I've lived, lived here the majority of my life. Yeah. I don't remember that happening when no. this city was actually poorer yeah. and there was a less wealthy. I mean, there was always, like like you say, there were always kind of tramps, as we yeah. used to refer to them then. There were always people that slept on park benches and normally they wanted to, you know, for whatever reason, they were, you know, not all there. They were probably suffering from some kind of mental problem, but, yeah. you know, but it was kind of their choice. And it then, I mean, sort of down at Charing Cross, it started to get bad, I guess, about 20 years ago, but it's much worse now. And I, yeah. no, I agree. There's money coming supposedly from the government. Mm. Um, I spoke to a guy uh, not long ago about all of that and who, who goes around helping particularly homeless veterans because there's quite a lot of them as well. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to, to, to know what is going on. I mean, I think the other, there is a problem with, with the sort of culture of begging as well, which I think has meant that a lot of the people that you see begging are not homeless, mm. but they then impact on people wanting to give money to the, the, mm. the real homeless people, you know? Um, and certainly I know that there's been sort of influx, influxions of people, is that the right word, from, um, you know, from some of the poorer parts of Eastern Europe living, I mean, I think there was a, there was a whole sort of tented village around Marble Arch at one point, mm. um, which I never saw, but I saw pictures of. Um, and I don't, know what, I don't know what you do about it, but London has become also a very busy city for me. I mean, it's now never quiet, right? Mm. I used to do a show that finished at one o'clock in the morning on a Friday, going into Saturday, and I could come out of the office and be in a traffic jam in the middle of New Cross at one in the morning, you know. Um, and I'm not sure that Sadiq Khan can do much about that. I think what he's done, I think he's messed up the, the transportation system. I think the roads are in a terrible, terrible state. He's, he's completely discouraged anyone from driving. But yet he's got 35,000 Ubers driving around at any given time, you know. Um, you know, the tube trains that used to be really good and very efficient are no longer that, you know. Um, and I think he is a figure who sees himself as, you know, the, the job's too small for him. You know, he thinks he should be prime minister. He thinks he should be president of the United States or something. I just don't think he <laughs> takes London seriously enough. And mm. from looking at the way he operates um, in, in the city hall chamber, he's very arrogant. You know, mm. he doesn't like people questioning what he does. We've asked him numerous times to come on our radio show. He's refused, never does. Goes on James O'Brien's show all the time because mm. um, he quite likes him. But he doesn't want to come anywhere where he's going to be asked some serious questions. And you're right about the knife crime. He could have spent a lot more money on police in London, but he chose to spend it on his PR machine. And he chose to spend it on trips abroad. You know, he was over in Europe, wasn't he? Not long ago, um, asking people if they could uh, become uh, honorary or associate members of the European Union, citizens of London and <laughs> citizens of Europe. You know, what, what's that all about? Mm, yeah. You know, we voted to leave, you know, get lost. And I think, I think he's... I just don't think he's very good at it, but I think he'll probably be re-elected because the Labour machine in London is very, very good, you know? But it's not just knife crime. I think there's a crisis with policing. Yeah. Like, like my parents' house got burgled last year. Yeah. And they reported it. A lot of very valuable things got stolen. And then they didn't even investigate it. They just went, right. the case is closed. Yeah. Am yeah, I- they don't. I mean, I don't know what that's all about, to be honest. I mean, I was um, the victim of a crime, um, which when I tell you what it was, will make you laugh. Somebody actually went into, um, <laughs> you may be laughing thinking about it, went into my local dry cleaners and stole my shirt. 
right? I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard of, right? But the Maybe police, you just like your fashion sense. Yeah, I, yeah. The police wouldn't leave me alone, though. Yeah, you know. And I know stories like yours, which is which is proper, you know, proper victims of crime. Mm. I then eventually they called me in for an, inter- an interview uh, into a Bermondsey police station. Uh, which is now closed, by the way, um, yeah. because when I went there, we were like stepping over. These, the guy was like, I'm really sorry. It's a bit of a mess. We're, move, we're moving out. I'm like, where are you moving to? He's like, well, we're not moving anywhere. We're just shutting it down. They're selling it. Mm. Um, and I sat there with him for about an hour uh, talking about this crime and how I felt about it and how it made <laughs> me feel. And did I feel victimized by it? And, and I'm like, you, you stole my shirt. So I said, I've already done a deal with the shirt guys. They, <laughs> yeah. They've already now going to, they're guaranteeing they're going to give me free dry cleaning for as much, as long as I want. Um, and cause I'm going to have to replace 10 shirts. It's fine. You mm. know, but yeah, I don't know what's going on with the police. I mean, yeah. they seem to have the capability as they have done recently to do these raids on the county lines, gangs. And every now and again, that seems to work quite well. The armed police in London, I think are brilliant mm. whenever there's mm. any kind of terrorist problem. Yeah. They're so quick now. Yeah. I mean, I was in London bridge the last time there was a, there was an attack and you know, the speed with which the rapid response guys get to things now is really amazing. And I'm very, very sort of impressed with that. But yeah, but the ordinary, just, you know, making yourself feel safe mm. in a city, which is what you should f- feel. I don't know what I don't know what's gone wrong, but I don't know again whether that's a national problem, whether it's a, a Sadiq Khan. But I think Sadiq Khan could be much more proactive yeah. about doing something about it. He should be saying this is the most important thing that affects everyone in the city, instead of going off to Europe and trying to get some kind of you know associate. Do you think he's more interested in his image than he is in helping oh, yeah. Londoners? I think so. I think he's the worst kind of politician, which is why I just don't have any time for him. I think he's only interested in sound bites. He's only interested in kind of appealing to his base, the people who vote for him. He's not that interested if you don't vote for him in what you think. You know, he doesn't really care about your parents unless they vote for him. Yeah. You know, um, maybe that's what they should have done. They should have called up and said, you know, we've, we voted for Sadiq Khan. Can you come and help us out? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you might have got them around a bit quicker. Um, so, Mike, the last question we always ask is what's the one thing we're not talking about that we should be talking about? But maybe before we get to that, you obviously take a lot of calls from members of the public. Mm. What do you think is the one issue that people are really concerned about or interested in in the kind of broader spectrum of things at the moment that that you you feel like oh this this is an issue that's that's getting a lot of traction? Well, I think there's two really. There's uh, I would say the the, the sort of the, um, the the environment is a very big one because there's an awful lot of people who hate the whole idea that we you know everything's turning green mm. and you know we've been told to stop eating meat and driving around in cars and not allowed to fly anywhere. And the hypocrisy of, of all of that. And I think there's, you know, there's a big backlash now against the kind of woke generation of people, I think. And a lot of ordinary people have just said enough already, you know, let's just like live our lives. We can be nice to one another, but we don't need to. But there's a lot of people telling us how to, how to live. And I think there's a lot of distrust and distaste about that. And I think we've already touched on the other one, which is immigration. I think people are genuinely worried um, that this country is basically full up. Now, you and I both know that parts of this country are completely desolate. Mm. You know, if you go down to the West Country, for example, you know, it's very white and there's quite a lot of room. You know, same as parts of Scotland. I mean, the Scots are always talking about how, you know, we need to have an awful lot of immigration because we've got a falling birth rate. You go to parts of Scotland, there's no literally nobody there. There's more sheep than there are people, mm. you know. So for anyone to say that, you know, the country's overrun with, with anybody, whether it's immigration or, or, or not, it's just not true. But I think there are certainly parts of the country where people feel you know, somehow that it's hostile. Um, and whether that's right or wrong, that's one of the, those are the two things I'd say that they get most worked up about, you know. And crime as well. I mean, you know, if, 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 if you count probably the, the, the numbers of callers on any given subject, there's always a lot of callers like you who would say, well, I reported this to the police, nothing happened. You know, I, I even, we had a guy once who said he had his motorbike stolen and he, he knew exactly where it was and he was behind, it was in a garage, in a lockup, and he'd basically found it because he had one of the tracker devices. They wouldn't go there and, 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 make, and open it up. He said, they, they were like, we don't have enough evidence. Said, well, <laughs> here's the evidence. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. But know. it does make people angry. I mean, you, you talk about doing an hour interview with the police about some shirts, right? I had my car broken into. Yeah. I got a fucking email. Right. I right. got an email and saying... And a crime number. And a crime number. Yeah. That's it. Right. You need your own show and talk radio, mate. That's yeah, what you need. Yeah, that, that's, that's well, the pulling power. you know, I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. Um, yeah. And, you know, other people have nice stories to tell about the cops. I think you've got to be very lucky now yeah. to have a cop actually come around mm. to your house and visit you 
and actually investigate what may have happened, you know? Because By the way, there's no criticism of police officers. I don't no. think it's anything to do with them. I think that my experience with police officers in general is they're incredibly conscientious, decent, hardworking yeah. people who are in it for the right reasons. Right. There's obviously something going on structurally that prevents well, them from I always, being able I mean, to do I always job. ask the question, you know, when they say, oh, we haven't got enough people, you know, but when there's a, mar- you know, in the days, you remember those days when people used to march for Brexit or mm. march for Remain or whatever it was, there was always loads of cops. Yeah. And they all somehow managed to find 20,000 police who were willing to do overtime. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's something not quite right. There's enough police. I think they're just not being, you know, policed in the right way themselves and, and given the right job, you know. Do you think do you, Peter Hitchens is a big fan of this, that they should be out on the beat? Um, I think seeing them is a good thing. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't expect them. I mean, again, I remember the days when they, they used to uh, drive around in those little panda cars, you know, and actually that would be better than what they do now. Because even if you see the odd police patrol going, if you're going to commit street crime, you're probably going to not commit it where they drive around, mm. you know? Um, I'm not a big fan of them just walking around. I think that's probably a bit naff. But I am a big fan of them walking around with machine guns like they do in Parliament Square. Mm. I mean, I was down in Parliament not long ago, um, and I love to see police with big fuck-off machine guns, <laughs> you know, in case somebody wants to do anything dangerous. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I think most people feel the same way. You yeah. know, they, they, you feel safe, mm. you know? So, you know. All right, well, we've got time for one more question for Which you. Which is always, what's the one thing that we're not talking about as well, a society that we should be? I would say it's not Manchester City uh, being banned from the European Union yeah. uh, at all, even though they've just hired Lord Panic to try and keep <laughs> them in it. Um, I think it's Trump, probably. It's the American election because, uh, you know, that's coming up later in the year. And I think he's going to win it. Uh, which oh, will is. drive all the lefties completely and utterly mad, which would be very funny. But it's also, <laughs> it's the death of, of, again, any kind of reasonable opposition which is, which is the wrong way to run a country. You know, I mean, I, my sister lives over in America and uh, she's a Democrat and she's absolutely in despair yeah. about the fact that they can't seem to find anyone um, who can beat this guy. No, that's because they've gone off the deep end, man. Yeah. They've, they've gone so far I off don't the deep know. End. I mean, I lived in New York for, uh, you know, nearly 10 years back in the 80s until 92. And, you know, I don't know what's happened to America. You see these videos on Twitter of the Antifa crowd mm. fighting each other and, you know, turning up with balaclavas on. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there was none of that when I lived there. I don't know where that's come from. I really don't. Um, and it's very disturbing, I think. And I think we need to worry about that a little bit because Trump for another four years, I mean, I don't think he's doing a terrible job, actually. But I just worry that he's creating this kind of hatred and he's fueling, um, you know, more of the same. So it won't get better. I think it'll get worse. And on that uplifting note, thank you very <laughs> yeah, much, Mike. there you Mike. go. Uh, Trump is an issue that no one talks about. <laughs> but, Mike, thanks for coming thank on. Thank you, not at all. Really appreciate it. If people want to uh, tune into your show, how do yeah. they do that? Uh, well, Talk Radio is on DAB. Uh, mm-hmm. We're also on YouTube every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look for the Talk Radio um, message there. We're also, we do podcasts. You know, just, just type Talk Radio into Google and you'll find us. And if they want to find you on Twitter? Uh, it's at IROMG, which is not anything to do with me being Iron Mike, which some people seem to think. It's mm-hmm. the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, which is the name of the show. No. Uh, and also MG was taken. Okay, fair well, enough. We'll put uh, all the links in the video, as always. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll see you in a week's time with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.